Will you please join me in prayer? Gracious God, as we just heard as Kat just saying, Lord, have mercy on us as we turn toward you. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word, for the, the truths it speaks into our lives, for the opportunity to open it in community with one another. Lord, we pray that you would be with us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This morning we are continuing in our series through Jonah, and we are in the second half of his story. It all starts with with God calling him, telling him to go to Nineveh, a well-known Assyrian city, and he says, no. He says, no, he won't go. Instead, he heads to Tarshish, a a port city that that really represents the land of opportunity, kind of right on the edge of the world, a a place where he could go. Uh, it's, It's like we could think of Hawaii. We could think of somewhere wonderful to go. He gets on the boat. Storm hits. He tells the crew to throw him overboard and it will make it all stop. He's thrown overboard. God provides a giant fish to swallow them. And while he's in the belly, he has a come to Jesus moment. Well, Jesus hadn't come yet. That's when those of you are supposed to be paying attention. Jesus hadn't come yet. So we'll say that he had a bit of a gut check. He had a bit of a a, a gut check. Jonah prays. He repents. God commands the fish to spit him out. And he's called to Nineveh once again. This time, after all that he's been through, of course, he he listens. And last week we saw that that Jonah enters this great city. He, He spends a day walking into town. And then he starts sharing a message that couldn't have been easy to deliver. A message that God gave him. That's that's eight words in English, five words in Hebrew. Forty days from now, you'll be overthrown. He didn't step into the city and tell them they were evil. He didn't tell them that God was against them. He didn't even share his own personal feelings about Assyrians, about Ninevites. All he does is share the message that God had given him. He told them what was coming. Now, there's been quite a bit written uh, about the numbers that are used in Scripture over and over again. So Jonah is in the belly of the fish for, for three days. Three is one of those numbers. Seven is one of those numbers. Twelve is one of those numbers. And forty is one of those numbers. So when Jonah shows up in Nineveh and says, hey, forty days you'll be overthrown, they should pay attention. And while there's varying degrees of arguments about the exact meaning of some of those numbers in the Bible, most scholars believe that when we read 40 days or 40, 40 days and 40 nights or 40 years, we should see it as an idiom for a long time, for, for a period of time, a long while. It's been a, about a decade or so, but believe it or not, Believe it or not, I've participated in a few endurance race events. None were all that crazy. Sprint triathlons, a, a half marathon, that was more than 15 years ago. Um, a handful of cycling events. And when I hear 40 days, I think of waiting at the starting line of those races. 
I know the end is out there somewhere. I know the end is out there somewhere, but it's going to take a while to get there. In one of my favorite books on pastoral ministry, uh, in the book of, of Jonah, Eugene Peterson writes, 40 days is a period of testing the reality of one's life, of examining for truth, of examining for authenticity. So when we read about God flooding the earth in Genesis, it's a season of testing. It's a season of searching for Noah and for the others on the ark. When the Israelites wander in the wilderness for 40 years, it's an opportunity to live by faith. It's also a season of searching and a season of testing. When Elijah runs for 40 days, he's, he's trying to figure out what was happening in the world around him. Again, a season of searching, a season of testing. And as we're reminded every, every year during Lent, which will begin later this month, Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, sharing about the realities of the kingdom of God, or spending time reflecting on the realities of the kingdom of God and what was coming for him. When Jonah finally shows up in Nineveh and shares the message that God had given him, he's letting the Ninevites know that they were on the clock, that the time was coming. It had been a while, but the race was beginning. They respond to what they hear by fasting and putting on sackcloth, which were signs of, of mourning, which were signs of remorse, signs of, of grieving, signs of repentance. And then in verse 6, we read this. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down, sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We have a, a group of about 20 or so middle and high school aged students and leaders returning from winter camp at Forest Home later today. And I'm looking forward to hearing some of the stories with what happened during, over the weekend. Um, I was about my oldest daughter's age. This is, this is kind of humbling to realize. I was about my oldest daughter's age the first time I went to Forest Home. Uh, and it's always had a, a place uh, in my, my heart. I grew up looking forward to family camps every summer, felt first called, felt the first call kind of nudge toward ministry while serving as a camp counselor at a junior high camp years ago. Camps, retreats, they've been an important part of my faith journey. And my guess is many of us here have, have something similar. Maybe we, how many of you grew up going to camp, church camp of any type, family camp, um, so, you know, retreats, those, those kinds of things, they're formative for us. I was talking uh, with a buddy over the weekend, a friend of mine named Kyle, and he shared the story of an experience he had at camp that completely changed his life. He was the typical high school kid, maybe a little bit of a troublemaker. 
And one night he snuck out of the cabin. Many of us have snuck out of cabins at camp at, at night when we've gone to camp. He snuck out of the cabin and, and he stole the camp jeep. He stole the camp jeep and he, he took it for a, a joyride. He took, he took it for a joyride outside of the camp property, around, just, just out. I'm hoping we're not going to hear those stories when our kids get back from Forest Home. Um, the, the, quite, quite these, but he, he took the camp, the camp jeep on a, on a joyride, and he, when he came back, the camp director was sitting there waiting for him. Furious, of course. He knew he was in trouble. He knew that his parents were going to get called, and at the very least... He was going to be sent home. But instead of sending him home right away, the camp director let him stay and hear the evening message. When Kyle tells the story, he said, I decided to follow Jesus that night. Kyle is now a camp director himself in northern Washington. His life was changed by the second chance that he was given that evening. Now, our second chance stories might not involve stealing a camp Jeep. Um, Our stories might be a little less dramatic than Kyle's, or they might be even more intense. But when we respond to what God is doing in and around our lives, we begin to see how the grace of God changes everything. Changes our own personal circumstances, changes the circumstances around us. Now we see that in Jonah's life. We see that in the sailors that he encounters, and we see it in the Ninevites as well. We're told that that Nineveh is a great city, but when, when Jonah shows up, things weren't all that well. We don't know ex- the exact timing of when he shows up, but, but somewhere between 700 and 800 years before Christ, Assyria w- was at a low point. They were constantly battling with the, the two neighboring people groups. A famine had struck the land. There were periods of, of civil unrest, some that, that led to some, some strife within their own city walls. Nineveh wasn't affected by absolutely everything that happened in Assyria. Nineveh was just one of the many kingdoms' provinces. But when Jonah arrives, they had to be on edge. They had to be on edge because the world around them, as they knew it, was, was unfolding. It's an important part of his story. It's an important part of this story because it gives us some context. It, it gives us... Uh, some of what may have gone on as they received Jonah's story. It's not necessarily that Jonah took advantage of their state of mind or what was going on with them. It's that in the same way that when we show up to church on Sunday morning, we carry what's happening in the world around us. You know, we bring with us What's happening in our own personal lives. We bring with us what's, what's happening in our family lives. We, we bring with us what we've read in the, the news or online earlier in the morning before we come to church. I, I used to serve with a pastor and he would talk about kind of setting our bag down before we came into church and laying it all aside. I wish I could do that. But in honesty, when I show up at church on, on, on Sunday morning, I'm carrying everything that happened earlier in the week. I'm, I'm thinking about what's going to happen this week. 
It's not like we, we live in a vacuum where we can say, okay, this hour, we're in church mode. We're only thinking about what's happening in the church. So when, when Jonah preaches to the Ninevites, he's recognizing that they don't live in a vacuum, and neither do we. There's a good possibility that as he preached, they were carrying a heavy load. So when they're given the opportunity for a second chance, they take it. And as a result, God relents, at least this time around. Now, this is kind of a a, a funny concept in the Hebrew language, the idea of relenting. Some think it's problematic to say that God changed God's mind, but I'm not so sure that's actually what's happening here. The image we often think of in this idea of God relenting is a parent giving in to the whining child who's, who's pulling on the, the, the pant leg in the grocery store saying, please, 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 can I have that candy? And the parent giving in and saying, oh, all right, I'll do it. Now, the word can carry a connotation of giving in, but that doesn't tell the whole story of it. It's also connected to expressing or responding with sympathy and with comfort. In my mind, the better picture of this word, the better picture than a a nagging child in the store, is a parent waking up in the middle of the night. A bit groggy. A bit groggy because they're just asleep, hearing their child cry. And once they realize what's actually happening, jumping to action and going to be at the side of their child. I see it more along the lines of God responding to a confession or a cry for mercy with compassion. We see the same word and concept used elsewhere in the Hebrew Scriptures. We see it in Exodus. Right, The, the people get, get restless. They're waiting for Moses to come down from Mount Sinai. Uh, it's another one of those moments where, where Scripture, at least to me, is incredibly relatable. They're saying, all right, God, it's time. We need some direction. We're ready. Give us some direction. What's next for us? They're tired. They're tired, and they're saying, God, deliver. Tell us what's going to happen. And so they go to Moses' brother. Many of us know the story. And they say, Aaron, Aaron, give us, give us some direction. We don't have a plan. We don't have a concrete vision. Tell us what's next. Aaron collects an offering. He builds a golden calf and they throw a party. The Lord notices and tells Moses, look at them. Look at them. What a stiff-necked people. Give me some space or my anger will burn. Or give me some space so that my anger can burn against them. And Moses He responds to God and pleads with God. He says, think of all that you've already done. Think of Abraham. Think of Isaac. Think of Israel. Remember the promises you made. Don't start over now. And God relents. God takes notice. God shows compassion, at least for the moment. Now, there are still consequences for their sin. But we're given the idea that those consequences weren't quite as severe as they could have been. We also see it in the book of Amos, in the seventh chapter. 
The book of Amos, it, it falls into the same literary uh, genre or, or category as Jonah. They're, they're both considered to be minor prophets written during a similar time. It's full of prophecies around injustice and, and hypocrisy, most of which were occurring in Israel. We see lines like, I hate your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. And away with your noisy songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never-ending stream. Now there's a point in, in the book of Amos, in the prophecy of Amos, where, where a line is drawn in the sand, kind of like what happens with Moses and, and, and God and his people at the, the base of, of Mount Sinai. But before that line is drawn, Amos pleads for forgiveness on behalf of his people. God responds. God responds and chooses not, God relents and chooses not to send locusts, chooses not to burn the city down. Now, whether or not that word relent is used in Scripture or where it's used in Scripture, God responding to human action with grace, with mercy, is a narrative we see over and over again. And we experience those moments in our own lives today. We, we think of them as second chances. Those second chances, they're often marked by an opportunity to, to repent. And remember, when we talk about repent, you know, we often picture the preacher standing up and saying, repent, 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 and yelling. But repent quite literally means turning around and going a different direction. T taking on an, another opportunity, hitting reset. And sometimes they come in these big, massive moments, but more often than not, we're given opportunities to repent each and every day. At the beginning of this year, Haley and I, my wife and I recognized that uh, the way that we run our household, the way that we manage our household needed to change. We have three kids, four different sports teams, choir, school band, piano lessons. Then there's the dog, kids homework, and the unfortunate reality that meals don't cook themselves the house doesn't clean itself, and laundry doesn't jump into the washing machine. Things were getting out of control, and something had to give. We needed a reset. We needed a chance to start over, and we decided to read a book that speaks to the chaos that, that we, many of us find in our homes. Um, I don't necessarily love the book. I'm going I'm to put that caveat out there. But there's a line that has stuck with me that has really, really helped, and it's, when emotion is high, cognition is low. When emotion is high, cognition is low. And I think about our, our own house. When emotions are high, when one of our kids is screaming, our emotion goes up a little bit higher. When all three are going at it, whew, don't ask me to make a decision. Don't ask me to make a decision. And so we, we recognized that we needed to hit reset. Again, this is just a, a small example in everyday life. We needed to hit reset. Second chances are the opportunity to step away from whatever it is that, that's kind of raising the, the level of anxiety or raising our, our level of frustration and to come back with a clearer head. When we read about repentance in the New Testament, it's often connected to belief. So when John the Baptist shows up and he's preparing the way for Jesus, it's the, the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Repent. Turn around. Hit reset. Take advantage of that second chance. And believe. And later in the book of Acts, as the the early church is growing and growing and growing, Paul says that it's both the Jews and Greeks, people from different backgrounds, people with different cultures, people with different challenges. But as they became the church, they were repenting. This ongoing process of saying, okay, what do we need to do to hit reset? And they were believing. Repentance and belief going hand in hand with one another. Our faith invites us to step into a back and forth dance with our Creator. One where we're encouraged to seek out these second chances. Repentance and God relenting. One of my favorite parables about that dance is, is the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus is, is talking with the disciples after an interaction with the, the Pharisees, and he's encouraging them to not give up in light of all of the difficulties that were, were in front of them. He tells the story of a woman who appears before a judge over and over again. We get the idea that, that she showed up every day pleading her case, saying, please do something about my situation. Eventually, the judge gives in. The judge relents. And it's not necessarily because the judge agreed with the woman. It's because of her persistence. So when we respond to what God is doing in our own lives, in the life of our church, around the world, when we show up over and over again, when we pay attention, when we look at those second chances and say, okay, it's time, time to hit reset, we see the grace of God on display. As we conclude the story of Jonah in the next couple of weeks, we'll see that experiencing God's grace isn't always comfortable. The fourth chapter of Jonah tells that story doesn't necessarily sit right. God's grace doesn't necessarily sit right with Jonah. But even in the discomfort, we're reminded of the importance of those second chances. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. May we respond to what you're doing today with repentant hearts ready to embrace what you have for us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.